The following message features John Payne and was recorded at the fourth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 conference. It's entitled, The Unique Role of the Holy Spirit, Getting to Know the Third Person of the Trinity. John is the senior pastor of Redemption Hill Church in Round Rock, Texas. Well, good morning. It's the middle of the conference. You can sense how exhausted you're going to be in two days, but we're staving that off much as you can, with much coffee as you can. I just want to say what an honor it is to be with you, be among you, sing with you, and enjoy the feast that we have been experiencing the last three sessions. Um, if you are, are wondering why I am speaking after Doctors Reeves and where, there is actually a really good reason for that. Um, Bob is actually a cruel man, uh, not many people are, are aware of this, this cruel... He reserves it for his dear friends. And so I, I feel actually particularly honored. Uh, to, actually, that's not true. Bob is a, is a very kind, very gracious friend, and very in charge of the schedule. Uh, so he, he was going to preach in this slot, and then he decided, uh, as he looked at the names and thought, oh, what a terrible idea. I don't want to do that. Uh, let's put John there, and that way I can reserve my slot for when they have lowered their expectations. I, I'm going to look great. This will be, let's, let's, uh, let's give them a seventh inning stretch, after which I can hit a home run. <laughs> so... Uh, Let's pray that God is gracious to Bob when he preaches in spite of himself. <laughs> it really is a privilege to be here. Um, I, I am humbled and terrified by the topic in front of us, the unique role of the Holy Spirit. I'm excited, I'm hopeful, I'm confident. I'm weak, and I trust that when you think about the Holy Spirit, you often feel the same. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my daughter. It's been a joy. I've looked forward to it for her whole life, and, and we have just completed The Silver Chair. It's one of the books in those series, and I, I wanted to read just a, an excerpt out of the beginning of that book this morning. We... we uh, we have just so enjoyed this book. And just to catch you up, in this part of the story, Jill is a child that has been transported to Aslan's country. Aslan's the great lord of Narnia. She's in Aslan's country alone. And she finds herself in a moment desperately thirsty, desperately in need of water. And she hears the sound of a stream in this strange land. But she begins to follow the sound of that stream, hoping to quench her thirst. But when she arrives at the stream, she discovers to her dismay that there is a giant lion right there by the stream. There's no way of approaching the stream without simultaneously approaching the lion. And that's where this excerpt begins. The lion speaks. If you are thirsty, you may drink. The voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. 
it did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but her, made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst. When we come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I think we feel much like Jill. We long for encounters with the true and living God. We long to drink deeply of fellowship with him, of relationship with him. We long to satisfy our souls in his unending character in the glorious truth of who he is and his eternal beauty. We long for that. Our, our souls were created to be satisfied in God. And, and, and yet there is this particular doctrine in the Bible that says the only way of drinking at that fountain is by the Holy Spirit. And so we feel like Jill do you mind going away for a bit while I drink? And in some cases, our concern about the Holy Spirit is understandable. There's this danger we fear of displacement. We don't want to displace the rightful, prioritized focus on the Lord Jesus Christ with a focus on the Spirit. And so we hear appropriate phrases like, the Spirit's primary role is to glorify Jesus Christ and reveal the generosity of the Father. We hear these, these helpful guardrails for us. And yet, those noble desires can sometimes function as a disguise for what is truly a wrong-headed fear. And more dangerously, I think it can produce a wrong view of God himself. Subtly, functionally, we can begin to believe in a divine duality. Father and Son, who has the very convenient characteristic of being spiritual and omnipresent. So we relate to the Father, and we relate to the Son, and we are aware that 
because God is omnipresent, he is present with us, and so surely we can relate to them. And yet, if we believe only functionally in a father and a son that have this spiritual characteristic, we have made an idol, a false god. We are not worshiping the true God who is father, son, and spirit. Devastating for our souls. And yet we feel like Jill. We're dying of thirst. We want the fountain of God. But we're nervous about the role of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit brings the divine close within. Even to the very level of union with our spirit. Not in a way that mixes the two. Yet there is nothing closer that we can have than the Holy Spirit indwelling and overwhelming us with his presence. And that is a bit frightening. To think of a distant father and a distant son, always available and accessible, but not particularly near, is convenient to us. To realize that God in his full divinity has brought himself even within is a bit concerning. And yet, we're dying of thirst. Thankfully, there's a marvelous interaction in the Gospel of John that speaks to this tendency and that also addresses our need. We're going to spend a portion of our time just looking at that passage and then I'll make a final point from another passage. So if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to look at the first number of verses in this chapter and then I'll make a final point from a few other passages in John. I'd like to read the first eight verses and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us and we'll jump in. Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's read. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray.
Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. Our souls thirst for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Lord, I pray that you would open up the fountain of your character provided by means of your Holy Spirit even now is present within and among us. I pray that you would illuminate your word and your generosity of yourself. We ask this, Lord, eager and confident. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you long to drink of the fullness of God through the Holy Spirit? Do you long? Let me urge you to begin now and for the remainder of this message to long. And not only to long, but to drink of the fullness of God through the Holy Spirit. Drink. Drink. Come and drink of the fullness of God through the Holy Spirit. Drink. I'm going to make three points. The first two will be from this passage. And the first one is this. The trouble with Nicodemus. The trouble with Nicodemus. Now, at first glance, when we look at our Bibles here, there's a lot to commend about Nicodemus, isn't there? There is so much to commend. Uh, He is a zealous man. We know that because he's a Pharisee, and they, they get a bad rap for being legalists. But you could just as easily say that they were the zealous spiritualists of their time. So, so certainly they had a, a self-confidence, but another way of looking at it is they, they truly desired to restore rightful worship and godliness in the land of Israel. So there's a, there's a certain zeal about this man in that he is a Pharisee. He desired to be pleasing to the God of his fathers. There's a zeal that's present. He also is a man of influence. He's called the teacher of Israel at one point in the passage. So he has this influence for God. He's not wasting his life on frivolous pursuits. He's, he's using his life to influence God's people. He, he has a ministry, we might say. He's ministering for God. And not only that, but he's a teacher of the law, which meant he had a great knowledge of God's word to, to that point in time. What had been written of God's word. He had a great knowledge probably had memorized major sections of it, was, was intimately familiar with its details, understood the purpose probably of books like Ezra that we might move away from at certain time. I mean, he, this is a man who had studied God's word deeply. Not only that, but he has this respectful curiosity about Jesus himself. Now let's just chain all those together. He's zealous, he's a ministering man, he has great knowledge of God's word, and he has a a humble curiosity about Jesus and has enough insight to be aware this man has come from God. And unlike his fellow Pharisees, he's not threatened presumably by that, he's curious, he sees a need for that. He's not jealous of Jesus, he wants to know more. So, It is surprising to me, isn't it, to you that that Jesus is so stark in his confrontation? 
wouldn't, wouldn't you expect Jesus to say something like, you're not far from the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Or, or, or perhaps to fill in the missing link. This is, after all, the gospel of John, filled with self-references from Jesus about his identity. This, this is where all the I am sayings are. So isn't this an ideal moment for an I am saying? And Nicodemus, you're so close. Yes, I am from God, but, but in a much fuller way than you realize. We would expect, I expect him to say something like that. We would tend to think that what Nicodemus is lacking primarily, and certainly the priority right now, is for him to come into a greater awareness of the person and work of the person he is talking to. What is the trouble with Nicodemus? Now, certainly he needs to come to an awareness, more full awareness of who Jesus is, certainly. And and the rest of the passage will walk through exactly who Jesus is and what God sent him to do and and so forth. But I think we need to pause for a moment and, and ask this question about our own lives, our own hearts. If you looked like Nicodemus, except with maybe a fuller awareness of who Jesus is, I mean, we can understand his ignorance. It's only the third chapter of the gospel, right? I mean, Jesus hasn't done hardly anything. I mean, you got to give a guy a chance to get to know him. We're 2,000 years later. We've had some help. I mean, Nicodemus just needs a helpful conversation. He's well on his way. If you were in this position, and many of us, I think, could be in this position, we had zeal in our life. We have a, a knowledge of God's word in our life. We have a, a ministry where we're investing ourselves in our life. And we have a grateful appreciation for the person and work of Jesus Christ in our life. How would you assess such a life? Pretty good. Doing pretty well. Wouldn't that grid be a sort of a standard grid of maturity? So isn't it surprising that Jesus responds to what seems to be a humble question with this abrupt challenge? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you're as close to the kingdom of God as a man is to being born again. With all your zeal, with all your knowledge, even with your humble appreciation for me and my role, you are as close to the kingdom of God as a grown man would be of being born a second time. That's about how close you are. This passage, it just confronts our convenient tame, self-willed view of the Christian life. And I know this passage speaks to regeneration, but I think there is a point here to be made about even after regeneration and the reality of just how we view knowing God. How we view what it means to be a Christian. There is a trouble with Nicodemus, and yet I think if we were like Nicodemus, we would not be troubled but we should be troubled. I should be troubled. If I put together that combination, I should be as troubled as Jesus was in addressing Nicodemus in this passage. 
Because there is an element here, there is a person missing from this conversation without whom all of the rest of it is as worthless as a grown man trying to be born again. There is a trouble with Nicodemus. There is a trouble, and I think there's a particular trouble with Christians in our country. Because don't we like a tame God? A man-made religion. A religion that we can quantify and that we can accomplish. Certain markers of achievement, zeal, ministry, knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I think that that is Christianity to me. And yet, it should trouble us. Not only should it, is it insufficient, it should be troubling, unsettling. There should be a sense that something severe is lacking. Pause. We need to pause here and allow Jesus' challenges to Nicodemus to challenge our view of ourself and our view of the Christian life. The trouble with Nicodemus is he is a lot like me. He's a lot like you. There's a trouble with Nicodemus. He needs something profound. He needs something profound. He doesn't just need a little help. He's not a little boy with a boost to climb the tree. He needs something, humanly speaking, impossible. Being a Christian, humanly speaking, is impossible. It's not difficult. It's not challenging. It's not a tough road. It's impossible. What does he need? He needs... Point number two, the transformation of the Spirit. The transformation of the Spirit. The trouble with Nicodemus is that he needs the transformation of the Spirit. He needs it. And whatever other combination he puts together without that is worthless. It is worthless. It's noble. It's a nice effort for what it is. But it might as well be nothing unless this transformation takes place. And the same is true for you and me. And the same ought to be true ongoingly with our view of how to encounter and live in relationship with God. Apart from the transformation of the Spirit, we, like Nicodemus, are a noble inquirer, but not a true and living Christian in relationship with God. Notice what Jesus says here Nicodemus asks the question how can a man be born when he is old can he enter a second time into his mother womb, mother's womb and be born now actually this question from Nicodemus it reminds me of a conversation I overheard uh, with two nameless acquaintances uh, especially the younger there was a younger and an older and the older wiser more experienced one was talking about the Lewis and Clark expedition and he was just kind of talking about how they had started in a particular city in the country and, and you know, the, all this expedition had taken place to explore and find a, a route to the Pacific Ocean. And it's a historical uh, event that took place during Thomas Jefferson's presidency. And he's talking about the city that they embarked from. And the younger, less wise member of the conversation said, no, no. Lewis and Clark didn't, they're not from there. 
Lewis and Clark are from Metropolis. <laughs> yeah, we gotta really have to increase history <laughs> reading. I think that's like Nicodemus here. No, Jesus. Can't be born again. Can a man enter? Can a man enter his mother's womb? Let's try a different analogy, Jesus. Because clearly, we need something that's possible. We need something that's safe and doable. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You're right. You're right. Lewis and Clark, they didn't come from St. Louis. You're right. But if you want to be the spirit that will enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that you can't make yourself be born, you desperately need the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's purposes of salvation and preservation and illumination in your life. Who is this Holy Spirit that Jesus references here? Who is this Holy Spirit? We we know from the rest of the scriptures a number of things about the third person of the Trinity. I'm just going to kind of organize them into three. First, the person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, one in essence with the Father and the Son. He is fully God and fully glorious, fully equal in divinity and in character, and as fully worthy of our honor. God the Father and God the Son, without God the Spirit, is not the true God. He is fully God. Fully God. And and we need to uh, grasp and feel and embrace and believe the godness of the Holy Spirit because of the way I think we are tempted because he's more mysterious. We, We tend to appreciate and understand father and son because after all we can relate to a father and a son. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, he's described as wind and water and fire and it's difficult to understand how a person is wind and water and fire and so it's harder to understand him so we tend to excuse his full godness in in frequent conversations. And yet, he's fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God, fully glorious, fully equal in glory and dignity and essence with the Father and the Son. No less God. He's not merely the agent of God. He's not a characteristic of God. He is God. The person of the Holy Spirit is God just as the Father is God and the Son is God. We know this for a number of different reasons. One of the ones that was referenced earlier in the week is that we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is put on par and on an equal footing with the Father and the Son. We are not saved only into the Father and the Son, but into the Trinity. 
We also know this because of what can be done against him. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament can be tested, lied to, quenched, resisted, blasphemed, disregarded, outraged, and grieved. It, it's, it's intriguing to me, it's sobering to me, that Jesus references one sin that um, is ultimately damnable, which is to credit the Holy Spirit as being the agent of Satan. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's it's interesting to me that of all the things Jesus could have said, his vigorous defense of the divinity of the Holy Spirit stands out as one of his starkest sayings. You you can almost hear this this, the same reciprocal uh, affection and, and jealous guardianship that takes place from the Father to the Son, and the Son to the Father also takes place from the Son to the Spirit in that passage. The Spirit, yes, he, he wants to shine all the spotlight on the Son. But when there is even a question that the anointing of the Spirit could be uh, misconstrued or blasphemed to be the work of Satan, uh, Jesus all of a sudden becomes jealous and issues his statement. A- anyone who's blasphemed the Spirit, he is guilty of an unpardonable sin. And, and don't be nervous. If you're concerned about that passage. I, I, I think that passage references those who are willfully and constantly declaring that God is Satan. So I, I don't think you're in danger, probably. But it speaks to the divinity of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Another aspect that speaks to this is the simple fact in this passage that of all the things Jesus could have said, good things that Jesus could have said, Uh, The thing he chooses to say is absolutely necessary for Nicodemus to be saved is the Spirit of God. Well, we know from the rest of the Bible that only God saves people. So if what is necessary for Nicodemus to be saved is the Spirit of God and only God saves people, then the Spirit is fully divine. He is God Fulfilling God's purposes on the earth. He's not, just, he's not just a cell phone in the hand of a caveman. If you imagine going back in time and giving a cell phone to a caveman and trying to explain to him, if you just push these buttons, you can talk to someone that you could never see and you could never travel to meet. It will be as though they are here with you. And I think we think of the Holy Spirit like that. He's sort of this way in which you can talk to God even though God isn't really here. He's like a cell phone. And he's a cell phone in an era in which we couldn't actually travel to go there, so we literally have to use this now, you know, because we can't travel to heaven. So, So we use the Holy Spirit cell phone, and it's great. God, it's like he's there with you. The Holy Spirit isn't a cell phone. The Holy Spirit is... God with you. It's not just the means of communicating with God. He is God with you, in you, in me. The person of the Holy Spirit. What about the priority of the Holy Spirit? The the Holy Spirit is fully necessary for salvation and for God's plan to glorify himself in history. Fully 
necessary, fully necessary. Apply that truth to your view of God and your view of the Bible and your view of how you relate to God. The Holy Spirit is fully necessary, crucial. Without him, there is no Christianity. There is no relationship with God. There is no glory to the Father and the Son brought about in history. It is so surprising, again, that Jesus highlights the the fulfillment of salvation. The very thing he has come to do and accomplish can only be finally fulfilled in Nicodemus' life. And if we portray that out in the rest of the Bible, it can only finally be fulfilled by the person of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus himself saying this. He doesn't reference it in this immediate passage. He doesn't reference, well, Nicodemus, the way you get to heaven is I'm going to go to the cross. And certainly we know that to be true, and we know that to be the theological priority, not only of John, but of the scriptures. And yet, within that, his accomplishment on the cross is only finally fulfilled when the Holy Spirit brings it to bear on a sinner's heart, illuminates the glory of what Jesus did in dying for sinners and adopting them into God's family and finally preserves them to heaven. All that Jesus did falls short of bringing glory to God or accomplishing salvation unless the agent of completion brings it about and that agent is none other than God the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The person, he is fully God. The priority, he is fully necessary for salvation. And the purpose, the purpose is to demonstrate the authority and glory of the Father and the Son by willingly accomplishing their purposes of each honoring the other. The Spirit manifests the Father's thoughts of affection and devotion to the Son and then fulfills the Son's mission of obedience for the ultimate glory of the Father. And we're moving a a bit into the the speculation realm. We're kind of trying to peer into the role of the Spirit in eternity. But if you remember the passage that references who can know the thoughts of a person except that Spirit that is within him, And who can know the mind of the Lord except the spirit of God that is within him? We can imagine even in eternity, somehow the spirit is is searching out the mind of the father to bring forth his affection and devotion to his son and searching out the mind of the spirit to bring out uh, the glorious submission and eternal honor he brings to his father and doing that in such a way that the mutual affection and devotion of father to son brings out the glorious roles of all three members of the trinity the spirit indwells god's people with their divine Lord. And through them, fulfills the Father's plan to bring all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is, we might call him the agent of completion within history. He brings to completion the Father's design and the Son's redemption. He brings it to fulfillment ultimately to bring about the glory of the Son and the Father. The Father plans salvation for the glory of the Son. The Son purchases salvation for the honor of the Father. And the Spirit fulfills the purpose of salvation for the glory of Son to the ultimate glory of the Father. What a role he has. 
how foolish to fear drinking of the fullness of God because it must be by means of him. Wouldn't we rather be privileged? Wouldn't we rather be overwhelmed? Wouldn't we rather be honored? God does not simply call us along our journey, but he indwells us with himself and through us brings about his own glorious purpose. This passage speaks of the Spirit's work as as bringing about a new life, a new birth and a new life. This was referenced uh, one of the messages previously about how our, our very tastes, our affections are transformed so that God, the Spirit, comes upon a person and in the same way that, that a baby exhibits the characteristics, the tastes, the abilities of their parentage, so we now exhibit the tastes and capabilities of our parentage, the Holy Spirit. And if we apply that spiritually, we might think of it as... as, as we bear the family resemblance. And certainly we've learned about that family over the last two days. So like the father, we love the son. And like the son, we are confident in and grateful for the affection of the father. And like the spirit, we rejoice in the assurance of the father's love for the son. And we glorify the son's role as the pinnacle and the ultimate projected centerpiece of God's plan in history. And all of those tastes are not merely something we aspire to or we long for or we hope will come about, but they are created in us and increased in us by God himself, the Holy Spirit. And God the Father does not bring this about finally. And neither does God the Son. It is God the Spirit. This is not something that can be measured and controlled naturally or even fully understood. I think that's the major point of what what he's saying to Nicodemus. Obviously, he doesn't get birth, so he starts using wind. He, He references the wind blows where it wishes, Nicodemus. Surely you understand the concept of wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you see the effects of the wind, and you know surely that it must be the wind. Nothing else is moving the trees around but wind. It's the wind. Clearly, that's wind. The only thing that's moving that tree is wind. So it is with the Spirit. In other words, looking at a Christian is to have the same experience we would have as seeing the wind blowing and saying, well, the wind's blowing. We don't see the wind blowing, but we know it's blowing, and it can only be the wind blowing. When you look at a Christian, you're supposed to have the same experience. God is present within them. It can only be God. Nothing less than God can produce the kind of life they are living. It can only be the wind of God.
The purpose of the Spirit is to bring about this transformation in person after person after person, generation after generation, producing a kingdom of newly born image bearers of the Son, Jesus Christ, who love the Father and reflect Him in increasing ways, demonstrating divine power until the last heart is regenerated, the last earthly sanctification is accomplished, the Spirit's work is completed on earth, and the Lord Jesus returns to gather his indwelt bride to himself. That is objectively what the Holy Spirit is and does and why we desperately need him. So what do we do? What do we do with that truth? What do we do? And how do we deal with the tendency to be a little bit concerned? God doing all of those things? Do you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise. Actually, from Scripture we know, actually, I do make a promise, you will never be the same. In frightening, overwhelming, life-changing, life-reordering, out-of-your-control kind of ways, you will never be the same. You will be caught up in the divine dance of God glorifying himself And in that whirlwind, all you can do is just be carried along. What do we do? Point number three, the transaction at the fountain. The transaction at the fountain. We come to this fountain. There is this trepidation in our hearts about the divinity of the one who is pouring out this fullness of God for us. So what do we do? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is believe. Believe. Sometimes I think when we, we come to messages like this at conference, I, we're, we're so eager to look for pragmatic actions we can take that we skip uh, the first transaction that needs to take place in our heart. Believe in the unique role in the Spirit. Let's just ask an honest question. Try to answer this honestly in your soul. Do you believe what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit? Aside from what you're going to do, if you believe, or I'm going to do, do you believe in it? Can Can you just, by faith, affirm to the Lord, this is what the Word says that the Spirit does, and this is what the Word reveals in terms of my need for him. The word says I cannot experience a relationship with God either at the start or ongoingly apart from the divine, somewhat frightening reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling within, transforming me. It would be worth it just to take a moment and just to affirm that frightening truth to the Lord. I believe that. Because you know, once you say to the Lord you believe something, 
well, then things start to happen. Because there's no way of believing truly without eventually having to do things and respond to things. Do you believe? Do you believe in the unique role of the Holy Spirit? Have you allowed the important uh, distinctions of the priority in Scripture about the person and work of Jesus Christ to disguise for you a subtle motive of a safe Christianity in which you can mentally assent to who Jesus is and who the Father is, and yet you don't have to surrender yourself to the work of the Spirit bringing about in your life the reality of the glory of the Father and the Son. I do that all the time. Thank you, Father, for being Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins. And yet... Do I have to give up that sin? Do I have to surrender this part of my life? Do I, do I really want to see the depth of what Jesus died to save? Do I really uh, want to feel my indebtedness to the Father for claiming me as his child? Doesn't that take me out of a certain comfortable Christianity? Not in, in any kind of chaotic, out-of-control way in which our brain isn't included or our heart. No, it's just that our brain is brought into a situation that is, is beyond what we could possibly have fathomed or imagined. Believe in the unique role of the Holy Spirit. Second thing we can do at this fountain, we can desire the glory of the Son and the Father. That's a simple thing to do, isn't it? That's just not all that difficult. Desire the glory of the Son and the Father. Just, just desire. The, because in the scriptures, if you desire the glory of the Father and the Son, you will gladly invite and desire the role of the Holy Spirit in all the ways it's portrayed and in all of his divinity. Why is that true? Well, because it's very clear in scriptures that the Father is glorified in sending the Spirit. Not the only way, but one of the primary ways. That's how he's glorified. John fourteen sixteen. you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. John fourteen sixteen says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In Luke, it references that God is surely a better father than earthly fathers who, if their child asked for uh, bread, would not give them a stone. And if he asked for fish, would, would not give them a snake. And, and Jesus makes the point, look, if, if even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then surely the father knows how to give the spirit to those who ask him. And so there is this point at which the, the, the gift of the spirit reveals the generous nature of the Father, not only to us, but actually more, more uh, in, in, a, in a primary way, towards the Son. Because he gives the Spirit to the Son and, and through the Son to us. And so the, the generous nature of the Father to the Son is revealed when that same Spirit is poured out on us. 
And so if you desire in your life, if I desire in my life to see the glory of God be displayed within the Trinity, I must long for and desire the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that the Father in his role as Father can be revealed. The Holy Spirit is called the gift. If we want God to be seen as a giving God, we must long for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our life. manifest presence of the Spirit reveals the generosity of the Father and the Father's affection toward the Son. The manifest presence of the Spirit reveals the glorious status of the Son. The glorious status of the Son. You can probably look down at this. It's on the same page. Uh, 34 of chapter 3 says that he, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. It's not precisely clear, I don't think, whether the he is referencing the Father giving the Spirit without measure to the Son or the Son giving the Spirit without measure to us. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. The point is that the very ability of the Son both to receive and then to give of the Spirit marks him as the one sent from God. So let's just trace this out. My desire, your desire... For the Holy Spirit in all of his biblical roles in our life, rendering them supernatural and not just natural duties that we accomplish. Our desire for that, even though it's a little bit frightening, a little bit concerning, it is the way in which we declare our desire that the Son be seen as the Son on earth. If you want the Son to be marked as the Son of God, the Savior, the only way of salvation, one major way that you and I can exhibit that desire is by longing for and desiring the full divine work of the Holy Spirit to be manifest in our life. It's exactly what John the Baptist said about him. There's someone coming after me. Here's what reveals who he is. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So if you want Jesus to be known as he is in your life and in the lives of those who are watching you, you must cry out for and long for the fullness of the Holy Spirit's work and and all of its uh, frightening divine intensity so that... That gift can reveal Jesus Christ, the one I'm asking for that spirit, is indeed the Son of God. Because only the Son could send the Spirit without measure. And let's use that word measure to provoke us. The degree to which we want the Spirit to reveal himself and his divine intensity in our life is the degree to which we want to reveal the Son as uniquely the Son. Moses had the Spirit. Elijah had the Spirit. Some powerful ways. John the Baptist had the Spirit. All these people had the Spirit. You know what I want? I want Jesus to be seen as the one who has the Spirit way more than any of them. I'm not asking them for the Spirit. You know why? Because they can't give me as much. So yeah, it's a little frightening. It's a little intense. I, I, I might be okay with just a Moses dose of the Spirit. I mean, even that would be intense. Even that would be... I mean, just Elijah... Okay, wow, that that would bump me from where I am to a slightly higher level of spirit. And yet even that doesn't come close to the role of the Son in giving the Spirit. All those guys were measured doses. 
They were measured doses. I want the Lord Jesus to be seen as the immeasurable giver. Don't you? I do. What does that mean? Well, it means in all the ways of the New Testament, when it describes the Spirit's work, I want it to be abundant, overflowing. Not because I want to be kind of a charismatic kind of a guy, and it's more fun to be that way. You can do things that other people can't do. No, no, that's not what I want to do. I, I want to be that person so that the Son is recognized. Oh, he's better than Moses, better than Elijah. He's way better than John the Baptist. You know how I know that? Because the spirit he's provided in my life, the divine intensity of God himself, working out the things that only God can do in illumination and in power for evangelism and servanthood and godliness and assurance of salvation. That's a measure of the spirit that only the son can give. Don't you want that for him? Don't you want your life, your life to be stretched to such a degree so that when the Spirit starts pouring out in you, God and the Son and the Spirit primarily and all the angels in heaven and those great cloud of witnesses and certainly those on earth can say, well, only Jesus could have given that much Spirit. (laughs) I remember. It's great how God gives you little funny moments in your life that turn out to be great illustrations but I remember this one time I was watching people at our church building uh, some workers they were trying to fix something about the the sort of the drain system how water came off of our roof Uh, we have these monsoons in Phoenix and so you get nothing and then you get a a flood uh, for two days and 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 so they're trying to fix how it worked and and they had some kind of device that they would they would put on the end of the spout at the bottom, and I guess the purpose was to create a sort of a restrained water flow so they could measure, you know, how much capacity and so forth. So they put this little cap, water's supposed to come out in a very limited, controlled kind of way. And I'm watching this, and, and because I'm mischievous, I didn't offer to do anything to help. I just watched him. And so I'm sitting there watching, and he's, and he's on the radio, and he's calling his buddy up top. He says, okay, let her go. And he's sitting there, and, and I'm watching, and all of a sudden, the, the cap just blows off the bottom, and the water goes everywhere. And so, he, oh, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Don't, you know, hold off. Okay. Well, then I'm, I'm watching, and I don't know what they're going to do. So he goes, and he puts it there, and then he puts a rock there in front of the little cap to sort of hold it in. And now we're just going to get this little restrained stream. Okay, go ahead. Well, then it, it, it does it again. It blows. You can see it tremble, you know, the little rock. And then it blows the rock away, and here comes the water all over. Oh, wait, stop, stop. It's all over our patio and everything at the church. I'm still watching because I'm mischievous. And so then he puts it back on and, and he's determined. So he puts his, his foot in front of the spout. And at this point, I don't know a lot about physics, but I was starting to question. Um, I, I just, it doesn't seem as though it's taken long for the water to be, I don't think your foot is that much stronger than that rock. So anyway, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not doing anything. I'm watching. So I'm, I'm, here he is and he's got his foot there. Okay, go ahead. And then I notice him begin to tremble. But at that point, he's stuck because anywhere he moves, the water's coming out. (laughs) Oh, no. And he he pulls his foot away and the water comes all over him now and all over the patio. And it it just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. (laughs) Don't we want to restrain 
the full outpouring of the Spirit so that it's in manageable quantity. This transaction at the fountain, it certainly starts with believing what the Bible says about the Spirit. It certainly includes desiring the glory of the Father and the Son. At the end, I think it it means declaring the depth of our need and desire for the work of the Spirit. John 7, 37, Jesus says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now the Spirit will never abandon or depart from God's child. Thank the Lord. Yet he allows our desire and obedience to him to impact our experience of his fullness. We know that because Paul specifically says to not quench the spirit or not grieve the spirit. Certainly we can ignore the spirit. We can attempt to limit his work. Not that we could actually. So the right way to say that is he allows the manifestation of his work to be limited to the degree that we are willing and longing for him to reveal his divinity in our life. Never in such a way that it's eliminated What does this mean? It means in our evangelism, we cry out for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, even if it means we are made wet all over with a passion for the lost. It means in our servanthood, we don't fundamentally think in terms of natural ability or comfort or ease, but we cry out for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, even if it means we get wet with the inconvenience of other people. It means when we read God's Word and listen to His Word preached, we cry out for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, even if it means that in that we see a vision of Christ that renders every other passion and desire in our life pale by comparison renders us tearfully overwhelmed at his death on the cross to save us from hell. We long to see his greatness in such a way that we simply can't turn away for the brightness of it. It means that assurance is not an issue of natural temperament, but an issue of crying out for the spirit of God to overwhelm us with the cry of Abba, Father, that the Son gives to his Father. It means that our confession of sin is not just a duty delivered by mail to a distant God, but an acknowledgement that God himself was present when we sinned against him. 
And that same God brings the assurance of forgiveness and an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. The New Testament is replete, packed with references to what the Spirit does. We don't need to look for strange expressions of the Spirit. There's, there's plenty to overwhelm us in the Scriptures. It's not so much that we're looking for unusual types, unbiblical types of activities. We're looking for everything that the Bible says to be done in a way that can only evidence the divine. Drink of the fullness of God through the Holy Spirit. Here's the prayer that I would urge all of us to begin to pray. The ultimate application that in everything you're doing, at any moment, at any time, you cry out to the Father and the Son, which I think is the best biblical pattern of how to do this. Father and Son, pour out your spirit for your glory. Whatever it means that he does to me. Oh dear, said Jill, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. She went forward, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Let's pray. Father, we cry, Abba, Father. Lord, because of the cry that is within us through your spirit, so we cry it right now in honor of him, in honor of you, Lord Jesus, we declare Jesus is Lord and we acknowledge that that belief is only owing to the divine presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So, Father and Son, we now approach you and we willingly do so knowing that we can only do so by the Holy Spirit. Wherever there has been fear of your goodness, fear of your purpose, unwillingness to surrender the comfortable aspects of our life. Lord, we cast those aside and we run to the only stream, the stream that is you. And we invite you in the person of your spirit to endlessly shower upon us 
and satisfy us with your eternal goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by John Payne entitled, The Unique Role of the Holy Spirit, Getting to Know the Third Person of the Trinity. It was recorded at the fourth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God West 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemin.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.